Good, good. That's right. Yeah. I don't know who, who, who's here is a fan of hobbits. Anybody? Not at all. Oh, no. No? Like the films. Okay. Right. <laughs> and you're not, you've not read or seen the films? Or seen the films? Did you? Oh, okay. <laughs> and, Lara, you're neither. No. no, I haven't read it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> let, let me see how this goes then. It might be interesting if you haven't but we'll read read either or, or seen the films, but we'll see how it goes. It, it should be. Um, I, I guess what I wanted to do in this title is, is just pick up on the kind of increasing interest in stories and myths and. Um, and I suppose what started me thinking about it was actually films, which is the most popular you know, medium for, uh, I guess, you know, cultural medium today. And um, in a way, like in, in films and, and in books as well, myths and kind of epic stories from, you know, from times past haven't been in, in favour for probably about 50 years or so. And, and a lot of our literature and films have been more about kind of small stories about... Um, uh, kind of more psychologically focused yeah, and, and often about an anti-hero rather than a hero um, and, then, and then in 2000 was the film Gladiator which uh, kind of I don't know if anyone's you've seen Gladiator like, likes the film Gladiator but it really sparked off this you know nobody thought you could make a film like Ben-Hur a kind of epic Roman epic Nobody thought you, know, you could make another film like that, but Gladiator kind of proved everybody wrong that it was a, um, it, you know, a film that recaptured, I suppose, an epic story and with a hero rather than an anti-hero. And then we had a whole series, uh, a whole series of different films echoing kind of mythic stories. And um, after that, um, we had Brad Pitt as Achilles in, in Troy. <laughs> And then even worse, um, Colin Farrell with his blonde hair as Alexander the Great in uh, Oliver Stone's Alexander. And then, and then uh, Hollywood kind of revisited the King Arthur myth as well, with Keira Knightley and Clive Owen as King Arthur and Guinevere. And then uh, as well, in the middle of that, um, Tolkien's epic myth, really, which is that he designed The Lord of the Rings as a, as a mythic tale to echo ancient myths like, that he loved, like the Norse myths from, from Scandinavia, um, was made into that series of three films and, and um, extremely successful. And then just at the end of last year, we had C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe um, made into, in, into a film as well. And for many, that's kind of the mythic story of their childhood and, and something that captured their imagination. And I want to talk quite a bit in this about Lewis and Tolkien's ideas about myth and how they relate to Christianity, um, because both both of them were, were Christians. Um, Lewis was an Anglican, and um, Tolkien a Catholic. And as as you may know, they, they knew each other very well, and were in a group called the Inklings at Oxford University, where they shared their ideas. And so a lot of them developed this idea. And what I want to do is explore their idea of myths, but I also want to relate it into Christianity. And w- another film that appeared in the same kind of time period of this increasing interest in myth was Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ um, and showing the last 24 hours of, of the life of Jesus 
and is apparently in terms of its kind of spin-offs and marketing and all that the second highest grossing film ever actually um, made millions and millions for Mel Gibson and I don't know if anybody knows any film buff would know the highest grossing film ever in terms of all its spin-offs and it's another mythic story Star Wars, yeah, good work. <laughs> yeah, it is. That, that, that is, and it, I mean, Star Wars is a mythic story. If you if you notice at the beginning when the, it scrolls up, it says in a, in a galaxy far, far, no, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So it's deliberately setting itself up as a as a, uh, a mythic story. And um, from Mel Gibson's A Passion of Christ, I guess many people's response to it is that it's perhaps another kind of myth in the sense that it's something that happened far, far away in another time. And perhaps like King Arthur, it might have a vague kind of echo of some past event, but nothing you know, really historical or true in it. It's a good story. And actually, if you look at The Passion of the Christ compared to, say, The Lord of the Rings, in a way, it's, it's not a very attractive story you know, compared to some, some of those other epic kind of films that were made at the same time. So I wanted to discuss, uh, read and, and ask questions about is Christianity just a myth or a mythic story like all these other ones? And um, in this, yeah, we'll have a question time at the end but feel free to kind of stop me and ask questions as we go along. I'm very happy to, to make it much more of a dialogue since we're a small group. That would be good. And I'm going to give two parts of my answer to this. First of all, I want to say yes, actually, that Christianity is a myth. Um, and um, that might freak out some of you and sound very odd um, but I'll, I'll explain what I mean and then I want to just draw out that it's more than a myth it is a myth but it's more than a myth and, um, and in these exploring the ideas I said of Lewis and Tolkien um, and I want to explain what I mean by a myth and by a myth I don't necessarily mean that it's an untrue something's an untrue story I think the true meaning of the word myth is that it's a story from a long time ago which is like a foundational story for a community so you think of the Norse myths they kind of explain for the Norse communities about who they are where they came from what their place is in the universe as people you know what, you, what reality is made up of so um, it, our modern use of the word myth is something we think that's untrue but I'm going to use it in that way as the, like the Greek myths or the Norse myths and I want to say yes first it is a myth and then I want to say well I believe that Christianity is more than a myth and, and that's where I'm going to kind of go in the talk so um, <clears throat> first of all I think it's worth just thinking about what is a myth what is a myth and what do I mean by a myth um, and I've always I've loved mythical stories I think all my life in fact I spend a lot of time reading um, myths still and um, my parents both did classics at university and I've, I suppose one of my first memories of them reading a story is the Cyclops adventure of Odysseus if you know that, that story um, from, the, from the Odyssey uh, Homer's Odyssey although in the children's version thankfully which, which uh, captured that story and then I think when I first learnt to read the very, well actually the second book I ever read was The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe I wasn't a Christian at the time um, and I didn't get any of the kind of religious um, imagery or, or, or retelling of, of, of the Christian myth in that, but I really enjoyed the story. It is a fantastic story. And then, and then at nine, um, my mum, well, at eight, she gave me The Hobbit, and then, and then I loved that, so she gave me The Lord of the Rings to read, which took me a whole year to read as a nine-year-old. I kind of battled through it, but I loved it. And, and for me, I think it's you know, it's, it's kind of the mythic story 
um, retold and, and uh, Tolkien designed it like that to be a myth. Actually, he felt it, it, what he wanted to do was write a story that would replace for the English peoples their lost myths because most of the kind of mythic legends of the English were actually lost. Beowulf is one of the only of stories that we have left. Whereas, well, you're not quite Scandinavian, but for the Scandinavian peoples, they still have all this you know, mythic lore preserved. And I wanted, um, I desperately wanted Lord of the Rings to be true as a nine-year-old because it was so much more exciting than everyday life. And, and somehow, you know, having read it, I wanted to be as heroic as Frodo and have a quest or some adventure to go on. And I think myths at their best kind of do that. If you read King Arthur, I remember I, I, I did a study group at Library where we read some myths together and, and one of the students commented having read King Arthur, you know, you read about all this adventure and this chivalry and then you put it down and you have to go and do the washing up. <laughs> and how does it relate into our lives? So um, I love myths and, and these are the kind of elements that I think mythic stories um, uh, have in them. The first thing that mythic stories have is a big story that goes behind kind of the, the, the adventure and, and usually the big story is the, is the battle between good and evil that's a mythic uh, a mythic element the battle between good and evil so you, you can think of King Arthur as a myth um, the story is, an, of, of, is about Christian King Arthur defending the land against the Danish pagans and, uh, and uh, people invading and, and the kind of ogres and monsters and, you know, and, and making this safe place so it's a battle between good and evil Star Wars is, you know, is, is the backdrop is the battle of the rebel alliance versus you know, Darth Vader's evil empire or Emperor Palpatine's evil empire. And then in Lord of the Rings as well, it's the same idea of the, the epic myth, the battle of um, Gondor and Rohan, the three peoples against the, the creeping of darkness and evil of Mordor. So that's one thing, get the big story. And then against the big story, you have a little story. And although, as we many um, myths have heroes in them, Lancelot or Aragorn or Achilles, uh, I think the best myths work where, where uh, you have ordinary people who are involved in the big story. And, and Lord of the Rings obviously has the hobbits who are designed in, or, or, or kind of created to be your really ordinary, very ordinary person. And Tolkien's idea behind the hobbits, his, or his inspiration for them, was seeing that um, your average... Uh, British Tommy in the trenches in the First World War as he fought in the trenches for some of the war and seeing your kind of average, you know, just Joe Bloggs but in his sense doing something heroic um, just, just by doing his duty. So there are these, these little people and the little people in the story have a quest to go on or an adventure um, and, and the adventure is actually the whole of the big story depends upon the outcome of this little story involving the little people. So in the Lord of the Rings, we get the Hobbit, uh, Frodo. He, he takes the ring on this journey to Mount Doom to destroy it, but really having no idea, actually, when he takes the ring, and for most of the story, how important you know, his journey is. He gets, has very little idea of it. But it, it's through the faithfulness and the perseverance of these people that the whole of the big story depends. Um, and then another element of myth is always myths are full of great tragedy as well. Um, there's always great tragedy when it appears that evil has won. And in Lord of the Rings you get quite a few moments of tragedy. Perhaps one of the um, most moving is when Gandalf is killed and uh, you know, he's kind of 
is the one who will guide them through on this quest but he's killed by the Balrog in the mines of Moria uh, the Star Wars has that moment of catastrophe when Obi-Wan is killed by Darth Vader in, in the, um, the uh, first of the original uh, trilogy of films and then so there's this moment when all hope is lost and, and everything evil appears to have won but then there's also a twist in the story and a twist and, and Tolkien called this a U-catastrophe you get the word U is Greek for good so catastrophe is obviously a bad you know, a bad tragedy and the U-catastrophe is and he describes it like this he said it's the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears and one gets many of those in, in the greatest myths and in, in the telling of these modern myths we see U-catastrophes for example you know, Gandalf the Grey is killed by the Balrog but he comes back as Gandalf the White and there's that amazing moment when um, the, the remaining parts of the Fellowship of the Ring see him again and, and he's going bigger and stronger, more powerful or um, Star Wars captures it a little bit with Obi-Wan you know, he's killed by Darth Vader but then um, uh, Luke Skywalker hears you know, Obi-Wan still talking to him in, in the force and the power and he's now stronger you know, than he ever would have been if he'd been left alive Frodo does make it to Mount Doom um, and throw the ring in despite all the catastrophes that happen on the way so those are the, those are the elements of myth a big story good versus evil a little story a little people catastrophe and then a sudden twisting which turns in sense the evil into good and the last thing I just wanted to say about myths is that um, myths also form a community the idea of a myth is that it helps people understand who they are you know, their place in the world and why they're here and the Greeks knew this very well and they read the Iliad and the Odyssey to, it was actually a civic duty so if you had been Greeks in Athens uh, before Christ you would have had to have come as a civic duty to listen to the Iliad and the Odyssey being read or some fierce punishment probably would have befallen you anyway the men, the men would have come and, 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 and the idea was that actually, if you listen to the, to the myth what would have happened is that you would have understood what the culture is all about you've understood the values and um, yeah, or, or, uh, how to act what it meant to be brave for example um, by, by looking at the story of Achilles by Odysseus what it meant to be cunning cunning is a virtue actually used in the right way and even to have a sense of humour and make a joke you'd learn from, from the stories and near us where I live in, in, in Hampshire is Winchester and in Winchester you can visit um, King Arthur's round table if you are ever passing by um, and it's in the great hall of Winchester the medieval hall but um, if you do visit it you need to be ready because it's not King Arthur's original round table if, if you have one but it's made in the 12th century by the king, British king Edward I and, but his idea is and in fact Henry VIII then, then repainted it and probably painted his own face as the face of King Arthur and the idea that he's obviously saying in that is making a very public statement is I am a king like King Arthur that's what he's saying through, through adopting in a sense this myth for himself and appropriating it and I want to you know, be a Christian king who will defend his land against you know, the outsiders or that kind of idea whatever however he saw it um, you know, I want a new age of chivalry and, kind of, you know, and the values of King Arthur so in that sense that shows how the, the British myth of King Arthur formed for later generations as well again the community and their ideas good
good. So that, that's why I say, first of all, Christianity is a myth. This is why I want to say it. Because I think it has lots of elements, of all the wonderful elements of myth in it. And um, I just want to tell you a little bit about how I see the Christian story as a myth and how it links into that picture that I've given you of what a myth is. Because, because Christianity has a big story as well. It has this big story of a creator who made us, who made the world in which we live and everything in it, and he made human beings, a man and a woman, to live within it, um, and full of wonder you know, and beauty and goodness. Um, and then, just like in the myths, there's this catastrophe. Everything goes wrong. Um, we don't get, you know, um, a full picture of how it goes wrong, but it seems that there's an angel or some supernatural being not content to be a creature of the Creator, but starts to envy the Creator and, and envy what he does and want to kind of make things of his own for himself. And then he starts to hate the Creator and his only desire becomes to twist and distort and destroy this beautiful creation. And he lures the man and the woman into his plans. And he lures the man and the woman, come and join me and I'll give you power and everything you want and in return for their allegiance. Uh, but of course everything then begins to fall apart. And so everything appears lost. Um, this battle of good and evil, everything appears lost. And the whole of creation descends into chaos and so do people and, and their relationships to one another. But there's a promise. Um, there's a promise in Christianity is made that one day a king will come who will make everything new and make it good again in the way it should be and make the man and woman in right relationship again with one another and with the creator and so then in the Bible in a sense it switches into this little story you've got a big story this titanic struggle God and evil good and evil and then the little story starts and, and, and Christianity focuses on this man, this one man who gets the promise that the king will come through him and his descendants. And then as you read the story, the myth, more and more the man has children and the family comes and then, and then they turn into a nation. But then again and again in the story you get this battle of, of good and evil and the evil tries to stamp out this line that will come, the coming king. Because if we can stop this family and destroy it, then we you know, we destroyed the promise. If, if the king has promised through this family and we wipe them out, or this nation we wipe them out, then there's no promise left and evil will win. And there's moments again and again when evil seems to have won. In the story, the myth of Christianity, you get um, this nation that forms from this, the man, and you, you suddenly get um, them taken into, into exile as, as uh, slaves in Egypt. And then the Pharaoh says, let's kill all the children, all the born children. You know, no more children, no more promise. Uh, later on, the Babylonians capture them, take them into slavery, you know, raise their town to the ground. No more nation. And yet, somehow this promise just goes on and on and on through all generations. And then comes the moment in history when, when um, the time comes for the promised king to arrive. And this is the moment when you get you know, the most unexpected twist. And I think, for those of us who are familiar with the Christian story, maybe we need to re-experience this as a, you know, a real twist actually in the story is that you expect the king is going to come and he's going to put everything right and here he's going to come with his, king, with his angels and his armies and actually suddenly what you get is a little baby uh, born in a, in a manger and I, having father of two boys when they're tiny like this big and they're you know, 
in winter get a cough and you realise and they're kind of coughing and spluttering at night and you've got a temperature and you realise how fragile that little baby's life is and then, and then you think that the creator actually his promise is going to come through this little fragile thing and that's how it happens um, and once again evil tries to stamp him out the, the king of the land tries to kill off this baby and orders the soldiers to kill everybody in the town where that baby's born all, all, the, all the babies, all the baby boys but warned in a dream the parents of the child escape with him and then we get a moment just like in all myths when this hope, the promise remains hidden away um, Jesus uh, remains hidden as a carpenter in a little village and it's just like Aragorn you know, in the Lord of the Rings the ranger who's the, the king to come remains hidden as this kind of um, shadowy character in, in the wastelands or in Star Wars Luke Skywalker you know, he's the one that's hidden away in Tatooine on this little planet on the edges of the solar system somewhere until the time is right for the return of the king and then in the myth we get this um, the hope starting to grow and we get uh, the, the king comes and, and he, he has amazing power people who are uh, possessed by demons are healed with a word people who are dead are raised from the dead and it's just this unleashing of amazing power but and then, then we have the ultimate catastrophe is evil hates this, this king and gets the king this time evil actually gets the king um, the, uh, the civil institutions hate him the religious institutions fear him and they get him and they kill him they kill the king and they nail him to a cross the catastrophe of you know, the promised king for thousands of years and then he's killed and then you get the ultimate eucatastrophe the turning, the twisting again that at that one moment when evil thought that it had won it's actually lost um, that it did in the one thing that it you know, wanted to do it actually achieved the ultimate good purposes of the creator and the beginning of the restoration and so the king rises from the dead and um, just like Gandalf you know, Gandalf the grey dies but he comes back as Gandalf the white and stronger, more powerful unstoppable actually um, you get an Obi-Wan you know, killed by Darth Vader but he, he comes back as this kind of part of the force and, and you know, he's actually much more powerful than he was before and the king rises from the dead and, um, and, and, uh, and his kingdom will, um, will grow and grow and grow until everything is set right that's the ultimate new catastrophe so that's why I, um, I say yes Christianity is a myth in that sense that in fact it is the myth and, and, and this is what Tolkien and C.S. Lewis described it as being the myth and, and their idea which I love is that, is, this, is that all the heroism and all the beauty and all the love found in all the myths that we enjoy are only there because they actually echo the Christian story that, that was their idea that um, even though they were written before um, the Christian story like all, everything from the myth that we love that is true and good and beautiful is there because it actually echoes the true myth of, of, of um, the Christian story. Um, someone summarised it in this, and uh, kind of quoting Tolkien, but, but just adding a little bit. The Gospels contain a fairy story, even the sum total of all fairy stories rolled together. I like it, you know, if one can just allow us to, to use that language.
fairy story, even the sum total of all the fairy stories rolled together. So I know that I've, I've asked these, these people if they like Lord of the Rings, and none of them have read it, but I'm not sure for you. But uh, lots of times, great. Well, yeah, and I think, I think it's amazing. I mean, I, I was, if you love the Lord of the Rings, then I would say to people, if you love it, then you love it, because actually it's, it's, it's got all the elements of the, of, of the true story in it. Um, and, and that Tolkien himself would say that, although he didn't set out to say, like, I'm going to write a Christian story and, um, of, of the kind of, uh, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. The story just came out of him creatively. But he, he said, because, it was, because he, was, he was a believer himself, he knew that this was the true and the good story and the beautiful one, and it just came out in the story um, of writing it, and it connected in with that. So, Christianity is a myth. Um, so I'll say, first of all, the myth. Um, and uh, I think we need to re-experience it sometimes as a story. You know, as a real, it's an exciting story, actually. It's very exciting. But, this is where I just want to move into it. It's not just a myth. Um, it's not just a myth. But it transcends myth, but it's also a fact. Uh, because... Um, other myths happen where and when we read the stories, Viking stories now, they're not placed in, in time and, and history and geography um, but the gospel is a myth that actually enters real time and real space uh, and Tolkien described it like this he said, this story by which he meant the gospel is supreme and it is true legend and history have met and fused I love that bit. legend and history have met and fused. And um, I just want to just, just look at the central event of the Christian story, which is the coming of the promised king, and just link it into history to show you how you know, this myth actually happened in real space, in real time, real geography, in real time. Um, so when we read in the Christian story of the coming of the promised king, he's born you know, into real history and geography in a real place you know, called Bethlehem where we know where it is today in a real time we read in the Bible it was during the censor of Caesar Augustus he lived from 8 to 9 BC Herod the king Herod the great was king he died in 4 BC um, I was just listening to this amazing BBC program and Anthony you're, you're the astronomer here but they were um, it, was a, it was a historian professor of uh, history of astronomy and, and someone had written in and asked, is there any truth behind the Christmas star appearing, you know, this idea of the Christmas star. And, um, and this history of a uh, historian just went through all the amazing kind of conjunctions of star events that happened at that time, um, including the appearance, what's a new star called when it appears? A supernova, yeah, including the appearance literally of a new star, a supernova, you know, noted down historically by Chinese astronomers around that appeared um, you know, I think around kind of 6 BC something like that as a, um, and, and appeared you know, brightly in the sky for several months and so you know, again when you read something that seems so kind of mythical you know, the appearance of a new star and, and, and all these conjunctions of, of planets actually happened in the, in the, um, against the backdrop of uh, the star sign of Aquarius which was the star sign associated with the Jews so for any kind of um, astronomers, stroke astrologers of ancient Babylon or whoever looking at these, they saw these amazing signs and said, you know, this is happening in the star sign of the Jews, let's go there. And, and so, you know, it's real time and real history, real events, even those kind of amazing things that just seem, you know, star appearing. 
And then um, the, the coming king, the, or the, the, the king, the promised king, lives in real history and geography. Uh, we read in the, when you read the Gospels accounts of Jesus, it's, you know, it's describing a real culture. It describes really the way that people interrelated. interrelated. It describes the cultural background of the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees properly. Uh, when we read of these amazing things he did, like casting out demons from people, it happened in a real place. A gathering and you can, go and you can go and visit there today or when he talked to a woman in a well in the village of Sychar you, know, you could go and sit on the very same well as it happened it's not a myth that you don't know where and when but actually it happened in real history in real time in real places and, and then when, when, when this, the king the promised king dies again it, it happens in real ways and he's crucified uh, the account is very real I, I'm a um, trained in medicine and the account of him being stabbed in the side and the water, you know, blood and water flowing out is a perfect description actually what, of what happens to people who die um, being tortured and then from asphyxiation and how the plasma and the red cells separate and you get, often get a pleural effusion developing and that kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a brilliant, you know, it's, it's a real description of someone dying and he died in a real time, Pontius Pilate was governor AD 26 to 37, Pontius Pilate was governor. Herod Antipas was king of Galilee. He stopped being king in AD 39. So it's, we can place it you know, in real history, in real time. And then the most mythical event of all, the U catastrophe, the resurrection of this king from the dead. Uh, again, it happened in real space, in real time. It was you know, three days after the crucifixion, after the Passover, in a real place, a tomb in a garden real people saw it the gospels tell us you know, there are 500 people who saw this saw him after the resurrection you, know, you can go and ask them it doesn't kind of hide this away he describes it's no hallucination he, uh, you know, he talked ate, drank, walked with people um, and, and these people actually believed because what they've seen in real history that they would, um, they believed that when this king said, I'll come back again and make everything new, they believed that that would happen in real history. And just as I close this section, I just wanted to talk lastly about, it's not just in the Gospels that the life of this, you know, the promised king is recorded. Um, I don't have time to go into all the, all the details now, but the Jewish historian, uh, Josephus, records the historical life and death of Jesus and notes his, um, you know, that, that his resurrection was rumoured, although he himself doesn't believe that it happened. The Roman historian Tacitus again records the historical person Jesus from writing in the second century AD and his death. And um, in the second century, Justin Martyr, a Christian uh, taken to Rome um, and appearing before the emperor, uh, at his trial appealed to the fact. He said. He said, if you want to know, you know why I'm a Christian and why I believe these things and why I won't give it up, look in your own records, this is his defense, look in the records of Pontius Pilate in Rome, which you keep, which tell the story of, of this divine, you know, and what, what happened with Pontius Pilate and him. So, you know, again and again, it's real history. Uh, let me just check how I'm doing time-wise. Okay, I think we'll, I'll just talk for another five minutes, if that's okay. Unless, does anyone want to tell us? Stop there and ask any questions. Or should we? Let's just finish. Okay, we'll, we'll just finish. Now, um, 
Yeah, I, ju- I just wanted to, at, at the end, um, really raise the story, raise the question of why, why is it important that Christianity is both, I think both, the way I've expressed it, myth and fact together. Because I think as Christians, a lot, if, well, I'm a Christian, I don't know about all of you guys, but if you, um, a lot of us might feel more comfortable with being given a textbook of theology as opposed to a Bible you know, to base our, our faith on. You know, something that's very clear, where, you know, this is the way it is, God has these characteristics and these attributes, and, you know, etc. But it's rather embarrassing for us as modern people that we're given you know, this book full of stories. Actually, if you look at the Bible, it's really a book of, you know, it is story from beginning to end. Even the letters of, in the New Testament, which are a kind of um, the most unstory-like, are still part of a story, aren't they? Written by somebody to somebody in a certain place for a certain reason, often in response to a problem or a letter from them. Um, and so, why does the Bible? You know, why is the Bible? A story. It's quite embarrassing for us in some senses that we've got the book full of giants and legends and you know, heroes and, and murder and, and adultery. And it'd be much nicer if we had a nice systematic theology textbook to come to give. And, and I really want. To, I just want to um, uh, just to take you into the way stories really help us actually unite our knowledge as human beings. Um, we, we find it difficult as human beings to know things in a kind of integrated way. We know things with our minds sometimes, and some of us know things in our experience, um, and it's hard to bring those together. But what, um, what reading a story does is it really enables you to bring things together from your abstract knowledge and your experience. And if you think of it as reading, when you read Lord of the Rings, um, if someone said to you, what is bravery? I ask you the question, what, is, what does it mean to be brave? Anything? <laughs> Give me an answer. Anybody got an answer? What does it mean to be brave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. One. Yeah, kind of. O- that's right. Over, kind of overcoming your fear or pain or something, isn't it, to do something? Okay. So you, you've got a, you've got a kind of. Now we've got an analytical, if you like, knowledge of. Oh, that's what bravery is. And I, the English Oxford Dictionary, who go, able or ready to face and endure danger or pain. Okay, but, so you think, ah, oh, now I know what it is. But then you read The Lord of the Rings and you travel with Frodo all the way to Mount Doom. And then if someone's to say to you, um, now do you understand what bravery is? You'd say, wow, you know, now I really am beginning to understand what it is, what it means to be brave when you journey with him through the story. But in a totally different way, it's not just a head knowledge, you almost feel like, you know, I actually understand, have experienced something of bravery in the story. You know, if, if you read a really good story, a really good adventure, you feel all the emotions of the characters. You feel the bravery, the sadness, the fear, the hope. The, and, and, and you actually participate in the story. For those people who love Lord of the Rings, I know if you put it down, you actually feel like you've gone all the way to Mount Doom with Frodo. And you feel like you've journeyed with him. And so there's something about a story which actually helps unite our knowledge of something. And then I think about the Gospels and I think about a statement, because obviously Christianity contains lots of propositional statements like God is love. God is love. And you say, well, what, does it, you know, what does it mean for God to be love? Okay, I can know that. You know, I've got this little box in my head, God is love. And then you begin to read the Christian story 
Oh, you know, God created us good and you know, able to enjoy the world and, and experience it, but we've all gone off you know, on our own tracks. And, and then his, you know, God is love means that he actually will send his son to rescue us. And, and what is that love like? Well, you know, when a woman is caught in adultery, this is the way Jesus was with her. And, and then he ate with the prostitutes and the outcasts. And now I'm beginning to understand a little bit more about love. And then I read about him dying you know, on the cross for me. And now, you know, I'm beginning to get the idea and expe- almost experience love. And what it means for God to be loved in a new way. In a way that if I had a textbook of theology, you know, God is love and you his attributes and love is one of them. It doesn't quite do the same. But we need that knowledge, but we need kind of to know how it all fits into reality. And that's what a story does. Um, and I think the last thing that a story does then is, is, is actually like when you read the Lord of the Rings I don't know if you've read a really good story of King Arthur there's a part of you at the end of the story that wants to be like the character in the story the hero I don't know if you've ever felt that you, know, you, you, you finish the story and you think no, I want to be braver now or like that girl saying she just read about the chivalry I want to be chivalrous but now I've got to do the washing up um, and um, and I think we actually get that same call from Jesus, actually, as we read the Gospels. It's a call, as we participate in it as a story, we get a call saying, you know, come and follow me. You know, and, and actually, it's the one story that we really can join in. Um, if you try to live in the Lord of the Rings, you end up being a very sad person. You know, if, if you really try and live in that kind of story. Uh, I, I have to confess that I am... Um, was a member of the Tolkien Society when I was 12 or 13 and I, uh, I used to dress up as a hobbit and I even had some friends who had a shaggy dog and when they shaved it they would give me the hair and I could glue it on my feet you know, with Evo stick and, kind of, and, uh, and you know it was lovely for it as a child to do but there are some adults now who still try to live in the Lord of the Rings um, and it's actually a very sad thing it's in fact an escape from reality um, and there are other people who try to live in the true story but side in a sense with the evil of that true story and live in that and find something that's true but actually is dark and not life. And what Jesus does as we read his life and encounter him in the Gospels is he calls us to follow him um, and find life, find ourselves in that story. And his story, the end of it is that all things will be made new and he calls you to say, you know, will you be a part of that? Actually making things new in your life, in your relationships, you know, in your studies, um, in, even in the way you do the washing up. You know. My most heroic event of the week is often doing the washing up. But it, it, I, I say it's a truly heroic event because it's doing something I can free my wife to have you know, 15 minutes of peace and, uh, and, and rest. And so it becomes a heroic event in the making of all things new and, that, and that's what the gospel does it, it's perfect C.S. Lewis called it perfect fact and perfect myth but together it makes something that actually you know, reality comes to us a story we can live in and, and take a full part in that's all I had to say um, let's have some questions I'm going to just think for a minute I'll just have a few questions about how that all fits together. Yeah. 
two things there. One is, I think when you read you know, the Lord of the Rings, you say, I want to be brave. I, I, I would say you're actually saying something very Christian there, actually. Um, you know, because I think it's good to be brave in a Christian sense. When, when we all in life have to go through things that are painful um, and difficult, you know, and sometimes things we don't want to do. Um, so I think that, in a sense, one, you know, and Tolkien would see that as well, that you were sensing their call to be to be Christ-like, actually, you know, when, when one feels that call from Frodo to be brave. But I think if you if you kind of try to live in the world of the Lord of the Rings totally, then you'd be going into escapism. And I think the difference with that and, the, and what Jesus does is he doesn't call you out of the world, he calls you back into the world um, to actually face all the difficulties and, and fallenness and your own brokenness um, but to let you know to with him kind of join in in actually um, yeah making things new in your your own story of your life. So he's not calling you to retreat into something, but actually to re-engage. Do do the same words. You know, I haven't called you out of the world but into the world. You know, not to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in it, but doing something that's truly kind of redeeming. And that, as I said, can be very little thing. Doing the washing up. You know, actually, is very um, is a heroic. You know, I see. It, I do truly see it as a heroic event in that sense. Uh, loving somebody, you know, uh, when you begin to understand what Jesus means by love, which is something towards really wanting for someone else what is truly best for them, you know, rather than your own agenda. You self meet people with our own agenda. You know, I want them to be something for me. But really loving someone else and, and desiring. In what God desires for them and, and in them and for them to be more and more human then loving someone in very simple acts you know, can be making a cup of tea again that, that's a kind of redemptive event I see you know, and that's the kind of thing that Jesus would call us to do um, I'm not talking about you know, becoming missionary or anything like that I'm just talking about everyday moment by moment you know, is, is that beginning to get there or, or is there more, more questions here? Yeah. 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 
Yeah, no, that's absolutely a good point. There are many versions of Christianity which can become escapes, aren't they? Um, whether it's into a kind of, yeah, that, that kind of, you know, God will give me everything I want, or, or it could be a kind of ascetic, you know, escape into some kind of pietistic you know, meditation or something like that, which could take you out of the world, totally. of reality that I can, you know, that I've encountered, actually. Um, as many of us have lost the story from Christianity and we've reduced it to a set of, you know, kind of abstracted truths. Like yeah, like a textbook. We made it like a textbook. And um, for many of the people growing up in Christian families and you know, going to Sunday school, you kind of taught it like a textbook often. And um, uh, it becomes, you know, you know it's, and let's face it, you know, it's easier to, to <laughs> preach a sermon from Paul's kind of more analytical text than it is from judges about Samson and kind of, you know, with this bizarre story. And yet, and yet, I see I'm finding those kind of stories more and more exciting to kind of let them be stories. I think that's one of the things we need to do. I'm particularly interested in children and um, kind of how they're, well, my, actually, my, that's, not, that's not true. My wife is very interested in children and how they, um, their spiritual formation, and I've learned a lot from her about it. 
Um, but uh, one of the things, I remember a, a student I had at McGree, he um, was really turned off the Bible. He said, whenever I read the Bible, all I hear is my dad's voice in my mind telling me what the verse means. And, um, and I said to him, well, how can I not do that for my children? And he said, he said don't teach them theology, just read them stories. And my, my children, you know, the oldest is five, and they engage with the stories brilliantly, but you know, I don't, not teaching them a whole theological framework. There'll come a time when you need to, you know, when you need to, um, as you grow and you develop, and there's a right time, you know, to begin to become more analytical, but we must let our children do that themselves at the right time. Because it comes, doesn't it, that there's that story about Sunday school, Sunday school class, and, um, and, and the Sunday school teacher says, no, no, what is this? And he brings out this kind of fluffy lamb and someone puts their hand up and they said, well, I know the right answer is Jesus but it really looks like a fluffy lamb to me and that, you know, that, that's the thing is that the answer to everything is Jesus you know, and it's kind of um, part of what actually in our church we do is, 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 is letting, we give the children the stories and then we let them wonder at the stories and, kind of, and ask questions and think and engage with the stories um, rather than saying, well, you know, this is the parable and this is what it means you know, that, that's Kills it, but you say, "Look, here's the parable. What do you think it means? That, that's what Jesus did. It's only one, I think, one parable he ever explained, and only to his disciples." Um, so, yeah, and for you guys, I mean, if, if you come from that, often people often ask me, "Well, how can I recapture the story?" And I kind of just, just, I say that if you can, you know, buy a different translation of the Bible that you're not used to. Perhaps you know, one of the paraphrases that's, that's just um, you know, tells the story well. Like I think the New Living Bible, I found that really helpful recently, just as a different thing, or, or Eugene Peterson's The Message or something. And, um, and read it a story, you know, don't kind of analyse every verse, but begin to read it a story again and enjoying the story and letting the story go into you. Um, so one theologian said that we, no, what we've done is made Jesus into an atonement mechanism. It just becomes you know, this atonement thing by which, but you know what we need to do is get into the stories and actually find out what does it mean to love someone, what does it mean to, you know, um, to, uh, uh, to, to persevere, and what does it mean to and, and get back into the stories. Yeah. yeah. No. No. probably does in various times and um go ahead, yeah. Pleasure, pleasure. Yeah, I think that that's right, it does it, it's kinda of, and, and one must we've got to hold those two together. I mean that's what I, why I said like um in a sense one needs to hold in our minds that the 
the story, um, the analytical knowledge, and the kind of experience which you get uh, together in the story. And it's I, I get, yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's actually interesting how, though, that for me, the proposition, you know, a lot of the propositional truth of the Bible is explained by the story. You know, it fleshes out. If, if you get a statement of, um, yeah, God is love, like said 1 John 4, um, and um, a statement like that, but then it needs, you know, to flesh it out, kind of, um, one needs to then understand the whole story, don't you, as well. Uh, and, and one needs to, you know, have both together. But if you have just the story, then. You know, never analytically think about it, then you're kind of, um, yeah, I, I suppose it's, it's one's imagination is actually involved in both, both in the kind of analytical and in the story, actually, both of them involve a wonderful use of creativity. Um, you, you know, I, I, sometimes I've found some theological textbooks very exciting to read, but if you, you know, you, you kind of, if you glimpse the truth in when it's kind of set out that you didn't see before, it's very exciting. Excite our imagination. Yeah, I think if you, I mean, if if, if you kind of want, to, you have to get a good grip on heaven. I mean, reading the last battle, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle is is wonderful. He has that phrase, which is my favourite one, when he says, um, "The term is over and the holidays have begun." And that's the way he describes heaven. <laughs> and for for someone who didn't like school very much, like me, you know, the term is over and the holidays have begun. It's just like that just brings up, you know, immediately all these things that. Sometimes the imagery of revelation, perhaps you know, we we we, we can struggle to relate to it in, in a way. But it's and and then the other the other bit of their writings that I found that's really imaginatively helpful is is Tolkien's. I don't know if you've ever seen *The Silmarillion*, which is his book of the first age in Middle Earth, and the creation story that he tells in that is is wonderful. Is the way it it, it picks up um, and helps. Kind of imaginatively explore the, the Christian creation story. I really recommend those as reading. Yeah. And for me, that's they've really reinvigorated my faith. Actually, reading, even reading King Arthur or something. Yeah. I don't. What are your Danish myths? What do you have in? De- in oh no, sorry, in Holland. You don't have. You haven't got a. You like us? You lost your. <laughs> you lost your myths like this. Yeah. But um, you know, even reading King Arthur, it gives you this wonderful sense of, um, kind of, of um, yeah, I suppose of things like perseverance, um, honesty, you know, values. Like that. You really uh, imaginatively helps you to, to kind of fill out one's picture of Christ. Almost, you know. 
I think it, I think it's I, I'd say it's very helpful. I mean, one, one thing we do at Libri every week, where I work, is we, we show a film and have a discussion every week. Um, and one of my colleagues showed Batman Begins this week, uh, you know, the latest Batman film. Um, and um, they had, you know, had a most, the most wonderful discussion about themes of you know, what needs to be justice and revenge. And um, you know, what, what the Batman character learns about those in, in the film, and, and you know, so that can link in with a kind of more idea topic. There, there are many films which um, uh, give you wonderful kind of pictures of Christ. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the film Heaven. Have you seen Heaven? Um, it had Kate Blanchett in it, and the guy Tom Talker directed it, and it's. It's a it's this film and you can watch it at one level and just you know it's it's a good film and kind of, kind of quite exciting kind of thriller type thing but uh, the the director very is putting huge amount of he's not a Christian he's, he comes from he's Polish well he wrote the screenplay and not the director so someone else directed it the screenplay writer and there's a huge amount of kind of Christian symbolism in it all about. Um, the fact that you know one of the figures is, is just just this Christ figure. You, you kind of once you, someone explains it to you, you, you can see it. So I think it's really useful for connecting with people um, and helping them. Yeah, you know, many people won't connect with the Bible, or they won't connect to Christianity. They won't want to, but um, love connecting with the film. Do you think why why did you ask the question? What's the kind of, what's your idea behind it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Are you kind of is is it kind of concerned that you know Star Wars becomes <laughs> a truer myth than the Bible almost or kind of. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think it's, I suppose it's, you know, in which, I suppose it's in which direction we're pointing, isn't it? We can use something to point to the Gospels in Jesus, or we can use it to point just to the thing itself. You know, um, I mean, Paul in Athens, I'm thinking of Paul in Athens, he's, I don't know if you know that, at 17, his technique of, uh, he appeared in the Areopagus before the philosophers, and um, yeah, and there he connected with them, he said, you know, I've been walking around your city, and I see all these statues, and I see a very religious people, and I saw a statue to an unknown God, you know, and let me now tell you, you know, who that God is, but, you know, because he's around us, and, and we live and breathe and have our being in him, and even as one of your own poets has said, and he quotes um, uh, one of the Greek poets. Um, so he's connecting in there totally with them. And it's very interesting actually in his gospel presentation there, he doesn't mention uh, the name of Jesus at all. Um, because in fact, earlier on he said, you know, I preached Jesus and the resurrection, and the Greeks 
people in the marketplace. And, you know, he's preaching two gods, Jesus and Anastasis. He's two, he's two different gods. He said, <laughs> you know, we've got the wrong idea. And they say, well, come talk to us in the Areopagus. But when he goes there, he dispenses with those two words because they didn't connect Jesus and the resurrection. And he says, yeah. And there was a man, he describes that a man appointed by God to judge everyone who got raised from the dead. Um, so he, he gives, kind of retells the Christian story that he uses things he's seen in their culture, the statues and their own poets. So I, I think there's actually a, a biblical kind of mandate in that sense for using cultural symbols, but um, you know, using them to point to the truth. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the idea of the fourth being, you know, uh, it's a kind of has a more Eastern, doesn't it, Buddhist kind of, um, you know, one might say monistic type of kind of um, everything's one kind of ideal of one could then, yeah, critique that or, or watch a film, you know, um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I don't know if you've seen that film, Chinese kind of martial arts language film, but it's a beautifully made film. But in that, you know, it, 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 there's this strong kind of ideal of love, but, and, and ultimately they enter into this um, kind of an Eastern solution to it, but it, it, even the characters in that can show you that that doesn't work, and they're kind of pointed. So you could use that to point to something else, and then, you know, how, how Christianity does actually... Um, provide you with this view of a world where it's fallen and one you know, hates things but also it's, you know, one, it's being redeemed and there's so much to love and, and take part in you know. so yeah you, you know you're right you're right it needs to have a critique and uh, um, you know but also connecting with people yeah. Yeah. And, and films are films are kind of the way I think in the sense of you know People, everyone goes to watch film, and many of your fellow students will probably watch. I don't know if Libri students are anything to go by. At home, watch like four, five, six movies a week. Mm-hmm. I don't know about. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what's <isn't> it? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's work. Yeah. So. I mean, we, we get so many coming, you know, they come with their laptop and a stack full of DVDs and, uh, to watch you know, and, uh, and uh, feel very deprived. So I think film is a real way, is actually a, a real way to, to link in, but so books um, as well. Um, and yeah, TV, TV, TV. Yeah, yeah.